If you love stories, or better yet, if you can't get enough stories about the strangeness, the mystery, and the synchronicity of life, well, then you've come to the right place. Because today I have the pleasure of presenting to you my interview with Trish and Rob McGregor, best-selling authors of Synchronicity and the Other Side, The Seven Secrets of Synchronicity, and their brand new book, Sensing the Future. Trish and Rob share some fascinating and mind-bending accounts of how people, both well-known or not known at all, have seemingly pierced the mysterious veil of time and space, and how they've been able to glimpse the future through what is called precognition. Some of these stories will warm your heart, and others, well, might disturb you. Either way, you'll come out of this with another piece of the puzzle of reality, and that is we are connected to everything and everyone. Take a listen. Rob and Trish, I can't believe it's been three years, almost to the day, synchronistically, since we last chatted, and I'll never forget that interview. Just so you know, audience, I consider this dynamic duo the gurus of synchronicity. (laughs) And as many of you know, this is one of my favorite subjects. Today, we're going to be discussing Rob and Trish's latest book, Fresh Off the Presses, just released, called Sensing the Future, How to Tap Your Intuition and Read Signs from the Universe to Predict What's to Come. So let's get right into it, you two. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Alexis. Hello, thank you. (laughs) And Happy New Year. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, listen, you're both obviously accomplished writers uh, and explorers of consciousness, and I'm always amazed that your material never gets old. Never, ever. There's always something new to That's good. <laughs> there is. There's always something new to be gleaned from your tireless uh, research. But I want to ask you to start off with all of your years of research into these great subjects. Do you ever cease to be amazed with what you learn? What we have through the research is we uncover more questions. <laughs> it's like none of this stuff is ever answered entirely. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, and it's just the the process itself uh, of uh, writing. It's, you know, I'm working on another book right now and working on a chapter that deals with hauntings, haunting experiences, the chapter is called. And as I started it, I got two emails from relatives, a second cousin and a cousin who don't speak to each other. And I haven't (laughs) spoken to one of them for decades. And they both sent me ghost stories. I mean, it was incredible. It was like the law of attraction or something. (laughs) Well, you know, I want to get into that, you two, because again, I I never cease to be amazed when I'm listening to the stories that you tell and how synchronicity is so interwoven in just your day-to-day life. I want to get into that. Maybe I'll get right into it. I wanted to ask you this. You know, the fact that you spend so much time researching and writing and conversing about synchronicity. I I wonder, is that in and of itself perhaps priming you to become more in sync, literally, with life? In other words, you know, when you read a book and you're studying it so intently, and then you go to bed and you dream about it, you become so uh, enmeshed in it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that over the years that's happened to the two of you? Definitely. More synchronicities have happened. 
Definitely. Just the, the creative process is just uh, related to synchronicity, precognition. We have things happen all the time. I, I'm just thinking something and then Trish will say it. She's in the next room and uh, mm. I don't even I don't even mention it anymore that I was saying I just <laughs> I was just thinking that very thing, you know, and it wasn't anything we had been talking about. You know? So, that you know, it just just happens all the time. And uh, it just in fact, I, I think that one of the chapters we have in the book uh, is called Painting the Future, mm-hmm. and it's about how writers, artists, musicians often tune into the future through their creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're a novelist, for instance, and you're really plugged into the story you're writing, chances are quite often <laughs> that you also may tap easily into a future event. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. In fact, I wanted to get to that a little bit later, uh, go into that a little bit more about the musicians that you cited that mm-hmm. um, synchronistically, ironically, and in often cases, tragically lost their lives, but it somehow it was uh, presaged in the lyrics uh, that they w- they came out with. But we'll, I want to elaborate that on that a little okay. bit later. Let me start with a quote that, <laughs> as I was reading the back of your book, of course, I was cracking up, uh, <laughs> by Whitley Stryber. If there's one man that knows uh, and is a true explorer of the nature, the true nature of reality, uh, I would say, is Whitley Stryber. He, this is what he said on the back of your book. He says, quote, conventional wisdom claims that we can't tell the future. In this exciting and empowering book, Trish and Rob McGregor take the conventional wisdom and put it where it belongs, <laughs> right in the trash. Yeah, I love, I love it. <laughs> I, lo- I said, oh, this is going to be fun <laughs> as soon as I read that. So let me ask you, when did you both realize that so-called conventional wisdom was anything but wisdom? <laughs> Gee, you mean like when I was four? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean... Well, we've always had an interest, both of us, just a natural interest in mysteries of the unknown, the paranormal. And then we started, as we grew up, finding out that everyone didn't have this interest. And actually, a lot of people didn't believe it. And science and the uh, mainstream science and the mainstream media denigrated uh, things that we believed in. So, you know, it's uh, in fact, when we were uh, before we met, we both had this these interests, but we kind of did it secret because there was nobody around us who really had these same interests. And we were both reading Seth uh, books. Uh, and <laughs> we had uh, we didn't have anyone to talk to about these books. Uh, and nobody uh, knew what they were or had any interest in them. And then when we met, uh, I was a newspaper reporter and I was uh, I interviewed uh, Trish for a, a story, actually, and uh, we got talking after the interview. And I was tr- teaching English to Cuban refugees, so I that's why he told interviewed me. That me. Before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And I was writing an article about uh, it was three years after the uh, the Mario boat lift and uh, what was happening with the Mario Litos, and so we started talking afterwards, and somehow Seth came up, and we suddenly. Uh, found someone who had read these <laughs> Seth books that were coming out year after year. <laughs> I wish you we had met then because I think I was running into the same thing. I think you may have tackled the Seth material a little bit before me, but I understand. I do. There is that that sense of the lonely journey that, right. you know, what planet am I from? <laughs> and there's always been, uh, I found, people that I've connected with who, have, who are familiar with Seth mm-hmm. end up becoming close friends. You know, over the years, and mm-hmm. just because you you have a a basis, 
you know, right. for the friendship in, in terms of your worldview. Right. And some of that stuff in the first Seth book, especially, it seemed very exotic. But now with uh, quantum physics, it seems to be becoming quite norm, mm-hmm. the norm. That book I call perennial, not that book, that, that voluminous work uh, by Jane Roberts, I call perennial philosophy, really, because in later years we found, <clears throat> excuse me, that so many, including quantum physics, uh, have have really just uh, connected in so well, really put a lot of puzzle pieces together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole basis of Seth is we create our own realities through our beliefs, our intentions, our thoughts. And that that's pretty big when you think about it. Mm-hmm. It is. And I think it's one of those things I know for me, we're going to make this a Jane Roberts, Seth talk, perhaps, because I told you <laughs> yesterday, I could talk about Seth all day long. And I, I still quote him frequently. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice, forgive me. But um, the why, why C-Y-O-R, you create your own reality. One of, you know, for those in the audience that may have, uh, uh, may be familiar with the Seth material, you may relate to, to this idea that I know for me, we, my parents had some of the Seth books, and I was inquisitive really? about it, but no, yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up in an alternative household. That's a whole nother story. Oh, that's but, no wonder. <laughs> oh, yeah. Seth Speaks was on my mom's shelf for years. In fact, oh, it was the old great. paperback with the, an image of Jane Roberts making this very sort of yes. creepy looking face. Yeah, and I, remember, expression. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was so scared to open the book because I had no context for what it was about. <laughs> but when I did start to understand this, some of the themes that were in the work, I said, I'm going to tackle this work one day. But I, I think I kind of waited uh, or intuited a time when when I would tackle this material. When I did, there was no looking back. So mm-hmm. just incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, let's. I want to talk about your book today. That's what we're going to get into. And Seth is mentioned in the book, by the way. Um, I want to talk about, I mean, you're all about synchronicity and precognition. And this book really focuses on precogs for short. Um, Minority Report. Yeah, and you mentioned that. (laughs) Right, right. But here's what I want to talk about. Um, There seems that there may at least be, at first blush, a fine line between synchronicity and precognition. Then there are other explanations that say they're one and the same, and you actually referenced that. I've always wondered, Robin Trish, as I've gone through my own myriad synchronicities, whether the actual meaningful event that takes place was my sensing the future, or did I somehow conjure the event by simply thinking of it? What are your thoughts on that? There's so it's so close when you synchronicity, telepathy, precognition. There's sometimes interchangeable in different situations. We look at synchronicity as like an umbrella of uh, other aspects of, uh, of the paranormal, uh, telepathy, precognition, um, clairvoyance, etc. And but they sometimes they're just really interchangeable. But one of the things I've noticed that uh, when we mention our book and talking to people who don't necessarily have a uh, great interest in this area that a lot of people don't uh, surprise us. A lot of people don't know what the have, haven't heard the word precognition or don't know the meaning of that word. And so we mentioned premonition or omens, and immediately there's a fear factor. They think 
if it's if you're thinking about if you uh, think about something that's going to come true, it's going to be negative. So that, mm. that's a real thing that we've come across mm-hmm. uh, with people who don't really have a uh, general interest in the, the subject. Yeah, we did an informal survey one day at the dog park. <laughs> at the dog <laughs> you know, park. Because you've got all different kinds of people that come there with their dogs. And so I just went around and said, do you know what precognition is? <laughs> no. I said, you know, know, sensing the future, a hunch, something's going to happen. Oh, an omen, you mean. A premonition. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Well, you know what I think that speaks to, guys? That speaks to, oh, how uh, society or pop culture has really sort of, what I say, bastardized these these words, these Mm -hmm. concepts. So many words have these these connotations, not connotations, but these stigmas because of the way they've been presented oftentimes in a fiction context. And I mean, I've asked people, do you know what synchronicity is? And they've said no. And I'm like, really? Are you kidding? Yeah. But they know what coincidence means. But they know what coincidence means. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. But usually they think of a coincidence as meaningless, yeah. which is it's the opposite just... of uh, synchronicity. Yeah. Well, I say coincidence are, are, is the coinciding of two incidents to bring about meaning. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. a coincidence, really. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, there, there are a lot of really immediate precognitions like the other day i was having lunch with a woman who was a former neighbor and she goes oh trish i got the best precog for you so mm. i said okay what happened well apparently her father got a drone for christmas so she and the family a large family were sitting outside in the backyard christmas day drinking wine watching the father try to fly this fly this drone and melissa had a feeling that the drone was going to hit her wine glass. So she set it down on the table and she said, seconds later, that's exactly what happened. So that that's a precog where, you know, the, the timing between the event and the feeling is so close that it could just be a synchronicity. But she said, no, this was a precognition because I acted. I set the glass aside away from me. Yeah. And a lot of people have a an ability to see the future about two seconds in front of the event yeah happening. like this one like uh we've had instances where it slammed on the brake just to for no reason and <laughs> just suddenly avoided an accident of a car right. coming out of uh things like that uh happened and i think that that's uh pretty common but uh, people might uh Think that was close and just kind of let it go and we had a neighbor who is or a friend who is very logical in her orientation and she had one of those experiences but she tried to explain it logically that there was some <laughs> mm. something in the environment that she must have sensed subconsciously that was there you know so that it was uh she she, she didn't want to accept it as intuitive <laughs> yeah well that's another thing and that this is i suppose in the category of cognitive dissonance associated with people and uh you know things that seem outside of the norm and this incessant need to explain it away that's a whole another subject right. and okay. and a very interesting uh topic uh as well well you know you mentioned the time frame and uh, having a precog happen anywhere from a couple of seconds before to in some cases years before uh-huh. have you both st- taken any data in in terms of what the most common time frame between someone receiving a precognitive message and the actualization of what is gleaned, you know, what is your research shown in that regard? It spans the spectrum. You know, it, it differs just like we differ. Everybody's different. Everybody's unique. So the way you experience precognition just depends on, I think, your mindset, you know, how open you are, mm-hmm. how receptive you are. 
and for a lot of people who aren't don't think of themselves as naturally precognitive, it can relate to some dramatic event in their lives or some it, major turning point or world events, you know, mm. such as. 9-11, there were so many people who had dream, precognitive dreams of uh, planes flying into the World Trade Center or things very similar to that. Uh, people charging down the street near Wall Street. And, uh, you know, so they may not, not have ever thought of themselves as having, uh, being able to see the future. But uh, dreams are one way that we... Most common. Yeah, we work around that logical mind uh-huh. because uh, we, we're beyond that or, or we're underneath it in the in our dream world. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Now, there, you know, there was a, a there's novelist named Randy Russell who lives in Asheville. And he wrote in one of the, I think it was his first novel, he named a character after his closest friend. And in the book... The character, who was the bad guy, got shot and killed. Well, the book got published. It came out <clears throat> around Thanksgiving. His mm-hmm. friend was, I think it was like the night before Thanksgiving, his friend had to get to the post office to mail off some invitations for some church event. And somebody pulled up outside the post office and shot him. Mm-hmm. Now, exactly what happened in the book, but he didn't die Instead, he drove himself to the hospital and was in critical care for weeks. But there, he says he's never again named a character after anyone he, he knows. Mm. But there's an instance of tuning into something through your creative process. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Trish, because I think that's a big uh, factor here in all of the things that we're talking about. I wanted to talk about um, the role of creative imagination, whether it's conscious or even unconscious, many times unconscious, and and the and the role that might play. Um, maybe we can go there right now. What you know? Let's. Well, there's there's just so much, and there's so many connect <laughs> points into this. I mean, we could talk about David Bohm whom I right. also love, who is a part of uh, uh, Michael Talbot's holographic universe and his mm-hmm. whole implicate and explicate order. And what role, you know, does, uh, I don't know, tapping the implicate, implicate order play in playing these things out? And then when where does creative imagination come in? I mean, there's just so many connect points here. Well, David Bohm, I, I love Bohm. Yeah, uh, I think if he were still alive, he would be one of my favorite people to sit down with mm-hmm. and just talk, talk, and talk. Let me milk your head, you right. know. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, his his whole contention was that the implicate order is the enfolded order. It's the hidden order, right. and out of that, everything else is born, even space and time. And the explicate order is the external daily life that we see. Mm-hmm. That's and that maybe. Synchronicity, precognition, and all these various aspects of of the paranormal exist along the border between the two. Mm, when people sense the future, Bohm said what they were doing was anticipating uh, events, but not necessarily seeing any kind of set event that's was coming, but anticipating. And sometimes those events didn't happen because that what they anticipated, they didn't like and they changed circumstances. <laughs> they changed it. And so it didn't have to happen. Or changing uh, timelines. This, this brings yeah. about the whole like, idea of simultaneous time and different timelines it, it, all playing out on some level. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that if you can have a precognition, and if you don't like 
what it is, you can change it. You know, you can change the future. Now, maybe you can't change 9-11, but you, if, if you were, say, going to be anywhere in the vicinity of the World Trade Center on 9-11 and you had a precog about it, you could change that. Okay. That's a good quote by Bohm here. When people dream of accidents correctly and do not take the plane or ship, it is not the actual future that they were seeing. It was. It is merely something that is in the present that is, uh, which is implicate mm. and moving towards making that mm. future. Interesting. Enfolded. It's still unfolded. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, these this has uh, quantum implications because when you talk about wave particle duality, they're both mm-hmm. co- coexisting. The wave you would look at, I would suppose, as the implicator still enfolded as a probability, and the explicate, of course, being the particle that it's been made manifest or actualized. Exactly. But they're not in in a linear. We, we tend to think the, if if that's the case, the wave would come first, and then the actualization or the the particle after, but they both coexist. So does that make and sense? And see, that's very too. Oh, sure. It all is connected. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I mean, I had an experience with this creativity thing um, back in 1992. I mailed off a manuscript to my editor at Hyperion, and it was called Storm Surge. And it was about a Category 5 hurricane named Alfonso that slams into Florida, South Florida, flattens neighborhoods, and devastates the coast. On the same day I mailed the manuscript, back then you didn't have email, mm-hmm. a uh, tropical wave moved off the coast of Africa. And 10 days, after, 10 days later, on August 24th, about the time the editor was reading the manuscript, that wave became Hurricane Andrew. There were so many similarities between what I'd written about in Storm Search and actual Hurricane Andrew, that afterwards, I said to Rob, I said, I'm never again writing about hurricanes. I don't, you know, I feel like I had tapped into something and it scared me. Yeah. And she did it again. Yeah, though. and then I did it again, though, in 2005, <laughs> and the same damn thing And the same thing happened. Well, you know, this, again, it's it's really just almost too bizarre to, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to imagine, but these things seem to happen so frequently, particularly when we're talking about creative types, people that create mm-hmm. scenarios, create storylines, create characters. Um, it makes me wonder, Rob and Trish, you know, we talk about precognition as glimpsing something that, at least on the surface, is outside of us, or mm-hmm. something that is on some level predetermined <clears throat> to happen. Now, I'm not saying I agree with it, but that's how it's looked mm-hmm. at in some circles. My question is, Again, are we more than precogging something, but at the same time creating it? In other words, in, in you know, sort of Jungian terms and even mm-hmm. Sethian terms, we are the, the unconscious co-creators of reality. <laughs> you know, are we yeah, actually I mean, creating these circumstances, at, thinking they're precogs, and we're actually the architects? That could very well be. <laughs> But the funny thing, or not funny thing, is the <laughs> the odd thing is though if we're creating these, sometimes they are not things we really want to create. For example, a comic book writer named uh, Dave Mensch, he was working for Mar- Marvel Comics uh, on uh, a Planet of the Apes uh, comic book series, creating original stories, and he was writing. He was just completing a scene of. Uh, in one of the comics about a black hooded gorilla named Brutus. And in the scene, <laughs> Brutus invades 
the hero's home, grabs the man's partner by the neck and held a gun to her head uh, to, as a way to manipulate the hero. So he hears a call from the, uh, from the living room and his wife's voice is kind of strange. So he goes to see what's going on and there in the living room is a man in a black hood <laughs> holding a gun to his wife's head with his arm around her neck. Exactly exact what what he was writing about. So, you know, it's uh, and it's, and as a result of that experience, he had writer's block or what it, you know, like a creative block for a long time. Mm-hmm. He was afraid to do anything. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I think yeah, we're onto something here. We're onto something here. There's <laughs> something really. There's something really powerful going on, and it really just—I mean, we could take—we could take the rest of the conversation and just focus in on that. I think it—it's—it's—it really just kind of shows uh, how powerful we are, how we are mm-hmm. innately uh, creators. Uh, you know, with the ability to consciously, but well, in many cases, it's unconsciously. That's the problem. We want to become conscious creators uh. of our reality. You create your own reality consciously. But if that's not, um, you know, uh, evidence enough that there's something about the power behind and the energy behind the creative process that has the ability to manifest uh, on the 3D level. Are you familiar with uh, Henri Corbin or Henry Corbin, a French uh, philosopher that talked about the imaginal realm? I don't think so. I'm not. Oh, good. Somebody can read. Somebody knew. (laughs) What's his last name? Corbin, C O R B I N. Uh, he wrote a paper on the imaginal and somewhat similar to, um, I suppose, Baum's implicate order. Mm-hmm. He believed that the imaginal was a dimension sort of enfolded or, or shielded from the 3D, but some a place or a an energy a spectrum that could be accessed by anyone. Wow! And, and cre- creation happens there, and depending on that process of what you go through to take it out of the imaginal, you can bring it into the manifest world using certain hmm. processes. So, see, that well, sounds Sethian. I mean, I think these different people are all te- they're all saying basically the same thing. Absolutely, just in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about spe- speaking of creating. I want to talk about your daughter Megan because <laughs> she's she's a great subject. I, <laughs> even from the time she was a child. Now I know she's she's an adult now, right? Yeah, she's twenty seven. Oh wow. Well, I think and she's yeah. she's our experiment. <laughs> but don't tell her. <laughs> <laughs> well, if she happens creation. to yeah, listen, our greatest creation. <laughs> she sounds lovely, but it sounds like she's a she's an innate creator. And I, I want to reference in your book. You have this great story about when I think she was in the third grade maybe and she was had a class assignment um the whole class had a i guess a thanksgiving assignment before thanksgiving break to create from clay an image that represented something that they were grateful for and she created everybody gotta hear this this clay (laughs) sculpture of a dog a red golden retriever was it yep Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, she didn't have one. But she's she's creating this thing that she was this animal that she didn't have but was grateful for. So as the story goes, it turns out that Megan did later get this dog through a serendipitous event. I think it was weeks later. Isn't that something? And and when she stood up in front of the class, she said, I'm grateful for the golden retriever I'm I'm going going to get. get. Oh, (laughs) we looked at her. We looked at each other. What? (laughs) We didn't know about any golden retriever. Brilliant. I think that's a that's a that's a heavy teacher. So my the first thing that struck me was 
gratitude. You know, mm. there's something about gratitude, and I don't mean the recitation of saying thank you, but literally feeling the energy as if you already have something. We've heard this before. Right. What What did you kind of muse into when, when that whole thing happened? Well, from that it, it, was, it was very funny because Rob and I looked at each other and we thought, we, we didn't have a dog, we didn't want a dog, we had three cats. And then a friend of Megan's, had her father was like a security officer in a school and he had been training this golden retriever who washed out of a drug sniffing program. Mm. And he said, this dog really needs a home. So Megan says, can we take the dog? Can we take the dog? Can we take the dog? So we said, all right, we'll take the dog for a few days. See, see how she gets along with the cats. The dog just strolled into the house, met the cats, flopped down in front of Bob's desk and stayed for 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that something? And Megan really understands the whole um, thing about gratitude. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, she, she practices the same kind of stuff we do. That's beautiful. We can uh, learn. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead, Rob. The story related to Megan is that we were on a trip in Asheville, and uh, she bought a uh, ceramic plate, and she decided she wanted to give it to her roommate uh, just because she is grateful for their relationship and that they were living together, and she really liked this house that they were living in. It was on, uh, near downtown Orlando, but it was also on a lake and an acre of property and a very reasonable uh, price. And uh, so she, she bought the plate, and she de uh, decorated with uh, – she put on – uh, on the plate, Megan and Aaron, friends forever. Mm. Well, a couple, um, maybe a month or so later, or a few weeks later, we were back up in Orlando to visit Megan, and we noticed that the plate was uh, was chipped. was chipped. And uh, Megan said, well, "Yeah, yeah, it uh, something hit it. I'm gonna I'm going to uh, glue it." And then. Uh, even later, a couple of weeks later, we saw her again, and the, the the plate was now in six pieces, and the glue was next to it. And she said, "She said, yeah, we put it in the the dishwasher, and it just shattered." And I thought, "Uh oh, this is this is a sign. This, you know, uh, something's going to happen." And, and she's she, not going to be able to renew her contract. She wow. was just coming to the end of the lease. And everything was fine, but then suddenly the parents got involved, the family got involved uh, because her uh, her father owned the owned the house, and suddenly she had to tell Megan, "You're going to have to move. My brother's going to move in." <laughs> oh my god! So, and, and Megan and I didn't want to recognize that this was any sort of sign, but Rob kept saying, "I really think it is. I really think it is," and he was right. Isn't that something? I that's in your book as well. Yeah, that's something. I, I still, as I listen to the, the multitude of stories that you all tell, uh, oh, are you still there? We're okay, here. it sounds it sounded like I lost you there. I'm like, Mercury retrograde's over. We shouldn't be going through this, but it got a little too quiet. Okay, but uh, let's see if I can regain my train of thought here. The multitude of stories that you all have to share about your own lives, you, Rob, uh, Megan, do you think that there is some sort of perhaps of a um, a family link with people that have uh, this propensity uh, for synchronicities and precogs. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. But because uh, Trish and I are from uh, families that are quite different in that respect, my parents were both into the paranormal. Mm. 
Trisha's parents were not. No. And they were very skeptical, especially her mother, which is kind of surprising. Uh, so but Trisha always had the, the interest in it to, in spite of that. And she has a good friend uh, from Columbia who is the same way, whose parents are very especially the mother is very religious and thinks uh, everything that she's dealing with is related to the devil and demons. Mm. And My uh, mother wasn't that bad. Yeah, no, your, your mother. <laughs> My mother was just a skeptic. <laughs> yeah, just a, uh, a skeptic. Yeah. But uh, so, you know, it, uh, it, uh, I, I think it varies uh, from family to family. If that, if that is inherent in who you are coming into where you've chosen, maybe we've chosen these parents for particular reasons and maybe, uh, that particular reason wasn't why uh, Trish came in with them as her parents. Hmm, that's interesting. I'm sure there's so many different scenarios, but it just it just dawned on me clearly there there's a link between the three of you. Is, is well, there definitely is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was funny when I was pregnant with Megan. I asked for I was doing this real Sethian thing. I said, okay, I'd like to have a dream where I know what what the past life was that we shared that's connected to this life that she's coming into. And I dreamed I was in a warehouse all by myself. My water broke. Megan was born. And I picked her up. And she opened her eyes. And she said, Iceland. I thought, Iceland? I woke up from the stream. I've never had any desire to go to Iceland. But after that, I did. Mm. Um, and some years later, she was in college. She was um, studying with a medium. And so Rob and I decided we'd go to have readings with this medium. And during the reading, I asked this woman, I told her about this dream. And I said, I've always been puzzled about what it meant. And she really did go into trance. You know, her eyes did the REM thing back and forth. And when she started speaking, it was in a slower tone of voice. And the story was that the, the, the past life, that Iceland referred to was in Northern Europe. Rob and I were a brother and sister, and Megan was an aunt, an aunt. Hmm. Our parents had died. She took us in and made us members of her family, even though it was a really difficult life for her because there wasn't enough money. She was taking care of a lot of kids, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this life was payback for her for that, our payback to her. Isn't that something? Isn't it? And when that's you think that is a beautiful, oh my goodness, that's a beautiful story. Obviously, did you, did you share that story with Megan? And did she seem oh, sure. to have any resonance with it? That's did a good question. You know, I don't think, I, I've been telling her these stories since she was old enough to know what I was talking about. Yeah. So it's hard. I have to ask her. And see, if it might her. trigger a remembrance in her. Like, yeah, that's it right. Might. Isn't it's that interesting? herself. And uh, in fact, it was while in college was uh, was studying with this medium, which uh, was <clears throat> some of her friends in college thought she was kind of wacky to be going <laughs> off and uh, instead of studying or hanging out with her friends, she was going off uh, driving 25 miles to meet this medium in rural uh, outside rural central Florida. <laughs> She sounds like someone that I would love to meet. I just that, that's something that I would do. I think that's great. That's great. Well, yeah, I mean, even now she says, Mom, I don't talk about my to most guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. She's very into the Hicks. Uh, yeah, the Abraham Hicks Abraham. stuff, which is also very Sethian. Right, it is. Indeed, indeed. 
I think some of us are just naturally have this natural interest and proclivity toward these subjects. And I don't know mm-hmm. that there are people that uh, perhaps can be converted in, uh, to an extent to, to have an interest in some of these things. But I, I do the stories that I hear, including from yourselves, it seems like we came here with it. <laughs> we just yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. And you, you both again, and I want to, um, I'm going to plug your website right now because, by the way, everyone, if you want to just dive deep, deep, deep into the world <laughs> of synchronicity, I want you to go to Robin Trisha's website, which is is it SynchroSecrets dot com. But the, the place where we post almost daily is blog dot synchrosecrets dot com. Okay, we'll make sure to have a link to that because it's a okay. treat and and it's updated so frequently and you get to hear other people's stories and comments about um, th- those stories and and of course uh, Rob and Trisha's uh, own stories. It's great, really, really is uh, chock full of great stuff. Let's talk about. I want to get into because your uh, sensing the future book is spends a great deal of time getting into how we can start if we can, to regulate this process of sensing the future. I want to quote Michael Talbot. Uh, We've mentioned him briefly. Love the late Michael Talbot, of course, Mm -hmm. who wrote The Holographic Universe. Um, He He really set a precedent with that book. He sure did. He sure did. And I still refer to it. uh, I do too. And it was really through that book that I learned about the work of, uh, among others, uh, uh, David Bohm. About Seth? Well, no, 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 about David Bohm. Oh, Right. And Carl Prebrum and mm-hmm. et cetera. But he said something in an interview, I'll never forget, it always stuck with me. He said, uh, we are like iceberg beings. Most of us is beneath the surface. Now, you <laughs> both contend that we can access what's beneath the surface to become more uh, hyper aware of the so-called future. But how, if you were to explain how that might, how, how we could proactively start getting beneath the surface, how would you, how would you explain that? Synchronicity is one. Synchronicity is that that point between the underlying reality when when events from the underlying reality come to the our everyday reality. It's it's the point where they meet. And just being aware of it's awareness. It's aware. Awareness mm-hmm. is a big part. That's being aware thing. of a coincidence that happen in your life and see how you can uh, find meaning in those. Uh, those coincidences it's just uh like just uh today trish was uh in a little incident here in the kitchen uh <laughs> we're talking about this book that this uh it's a, go- a book of ghost writing. right and uh the the person she's been working with has been kind of slow and we we're just thinking finally she's starting to move and suddenly uh we had something uh, on the stove and we had a cover on it and some of the grease splattered <laughs> and and flame shot up from the, <laughs> the oh stove just as we were talking about i grab that. it and throw it in the sink you know i mean i really thought we were gonna have a fire in here oh my goodness it shot up a good two feet <laughs> so rob said so what were you thinking about i said so I, what were we talking about? So I told him, he goes, hmm. <laughs> things are so good. just like things like that. In other words, there aren't any accidents. You know, not, not that I'm saying that you have to pay attention to every little thing that happens, but like the broken plate incident, the fire. You know, there's just stuff in, the, in, the, in your personal environment that are clues. Mm-hmm. It's an accident, but it has meaning. Right. Like one time, to give you another quick example. Uh, I was at a a book fair. I think it was like the Southern Book Fair or whatever the name, the actual name is. And a friend and I had gone there to promote a book we had written on on the Tarot. So Phyllis and I go up to our room and 
we're washing up to go downstairs to see where our booth is. And all of a sudden she squeals, a bee bit me, a bee stung me. I said, a bee? How did a bee even get in here? Nothing was open. She goes, who cares how it got in here? What does it mean? Well, I think we both knew that we were going to, quote, get stung somehow during this conference, mm. which I might add was during a Mercury retrograde. <laughs> mm. And sure enough, our books never showed up. Wow. The bee knew. The bee, well. A book signing with no book. Yeah, book a book signing with, no with no book. You got stung. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so you know, things like that. Yeah. I was, because you, you really, really do enunciate that in the book over and over again. In fact, you talk about comparing the outer, outer world of symbols and signs uh, or using it as a sort of counterpart to the symbols and mm -hmm. signs that are shown in, in our dreams. Dreams seem to be, I mean, they're, they're definitely chock full <coughs> of signs and symbols. And there are many of them in our outer world as well. But how I could see perhaps somebody who's intent on sharpening their, their pencil when it comes to recognizing the signs, but they start seeing every little thing mm -hmm. as a sign and symbol, which can maybe be a little confusing. How, how might one learn to discern, I guess, is the That could question. be a little OCD, actually. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the tricky part. Uh, I'm thinking of a story a man told me where he had a dream of his cabin uh, s slipped off the foundation of his house. And he said, I'm, uh, I've got to go there. It's a two-hour drive. I've got to take off work and go see what happened. I said, look, listen, this is probably symbolic. There's, it's probably you know, something in your life that feels or it's something that's coming that's a little bit off the foundation of who you are, <coughs> uh, some shift. And he, he thought about that. He said, no, I'm going to still go. And so he drove two hours that, oh, this is going to be a useless trip. He got there, and one of the concrete blocks in the corner had had actually slipped. <laughs> the 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 uh, cabin was actually in danger of uh, of tilting to one side. So that was something huh. that was a, a precognitive event. So the, the whole, so Rob was wrong. Yeah. So you know, it's it's how you interpret it, and the best person for interpreting your dreams is yourself. Is, and that was a good example of that. Isn't that something? Wow. Isn't that something? Well, there are a lot of uh, a lot of prompts, I suppose, in the outer world that can be used. You also talk about nature, I think, in that regard, mm -hmm. really, and I, I think that's a, a fascinating thing. And I think it's just a it's a natural process because we are of nature. Looking at trees, and you know, this sometimes I'll look at the sway of a tree. I'll ask a question and kind of read right. the movement of a tree or or birds. Let's talk about that. Yeah, now, have you written about um, the sort of omens, I guess you could call it, or sort of symbols and signs associated with birds? Um, <clears throat> a psychic friend and I wrote a book called Animal Totems, mm. where we wrote just about, you know, if you have an experience with an animal, what it could possibly mean. But I find that what's most useful is to is to do your own research. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have an experience, like, like the thing with the bee was so spontaneous that Phyllis and I both knew immediately what, what it was referring to. Okay. However, how about the sparrow story? Yeah, the, the swallows. swallows. <laughs> the swallows, yeah. yeah. We had an experience where we were driving across Florida because uh, Megan was going to college in Sarasota. We were <coughs> living near West Palm Beach. 
and so right across the center of the state. And we would always be right around uh, dusk as we were coming home. And there would always, in this one area of about 10 miles stretch, there would always always be these swallows just diving, uh, hundreds of them. We'd be always be fascinated by them because they had some come so close to the car and just sweep by, and they always seemed to have some kind of radar where they wouldn't hit us. On this one trip, bang, one of them hit us, and a, a minute later, bang, another one hit the, hit the windshield, hmm. uh, two swallows. And so we said, what does that mean, two swallows? So where we were happened to be about 10 miles or so from where, was it in two weeks, Megan was going to? 11 days. 11 days, Megan was going to uh, jump out of an airplane when, in a parachute. Tandem. Ta- tandem <laughs> jump. Hmm. So, uh, you know, we didn't put it together right then. But uh, so 11 days later, we went there to watch her. She was the last one out of the plane. First of all, they're supposed to leave it jump at 1230. They didn't jump until 2. The 2 is a big thing here because it was her 20th birthday. Two swallows. 11, tandem jump. Yeah, 11 days after. 11 days. And, you know, but this is all stuff we figured out in the aftermath, though, but it, it all it all fit together. Well, what happened is she jumped and the, the parachute didn't open. And uh, so we were standing right next to a trainer and he says, that's interesting. I've never seen that before. The, <laughs> the chute didn't open. <laughs> and we said, what? And then the, <laughs> the secondary chute opened up and they came down hard, but they, they were both okay. But, uh, you know, that's where we, we started putting it all together about the, the you know, it was a, a precognition about the swallows. Uh, but, we, but we didn't know. Yeah. You know, that's the whole thing. We didn't know until after the event had happened. And that's that's just like the... The uh, the planetary empaths uh, we write about, the people who have different uh, sensations in their body that aren't uh, related to any illness, but they they suddenly, uh, their ears are buzzing, their eyes are watering, they, they're, they're choking up, and they know that it's related to some major catastrophe, some event that's either uh, human made or natural, natural. and uh, and the, they will start writing us on our blog and we'll be collecting these and hmm. uh, but nobody knows what it is where it is and then something will happen <laughs> yeah you know the uh, we, we must have had a, at least a half a dozen of them just before that uh, that devastating her uh, earthquake that hit uh, Haiti mm-hmm. uh, and hmm. it, and know, also before the Boston Marathon. Yeah, really, hmm. yeah. And so, uh, you know, being a planetary empath is not a fun thing, though, because it's, uh, th- these are painful situations that can go on for for days. But but when the event happens, suddenly they they clear up. Mm. But I see, would, I think these people could be trained to say, okay, this is going to be a volcano. Or volcanic eruption. This is going to be a flood. You know, in other words, if you have this innate ability to feel these symptoms that are planetary in nature, couldn't they be trained in some way so that they could fine tune them? I mean, right. that would be pretty cool. I think that, I, well, it's interesting. <laughs> Synchronistically, I was going to ask you uh, on the heel of that, because I wanted to mention the planetary empaths. And, and thank you, Rob, for explaining that, because you, you go into that uh, in great detail in your book. Um, I think there are a lot of people that are and didn't have a name for it until now. But my question is, do you think being empathic uh, is a gift or a curse? And in, in well, 
I don't know if it's an either or, but in any case, might we as an empathic type of person be able to control uh, the information a little bit more and even know how to turn it off at times? Well, the, the planetary impasse we've talked to, part of the frustration is that they can't turn it off. You know, they, they would like to be able to, but it's, it's as if once they connect with whatever the energy is that's coming up, they just have to go with it. Yeah, they're like shamans. Uh, they're typically mm -hmm. not happy campers. Yeah. Uh, mm. You know, they, they have these abilities and uh, they can't seem to control it. And unfortunately, they can't pinpoint it. But even if they could pinpoint it, you know, it, uh, what are you going to do? Uh, there, right. there, there's going to be an earthquake in uh, Haiti. Are you going to evacuate the entire country? Is anybody going to listen to you? Or there's going to be a but if bomb it's, if the it's Boston Marathon. If it's personal, and you, you think there's going to, if you know there's going to be some disruption, some life-threatening situation, you and your friends and people you know can avoid being there, but you might not be able to do anything to mm -hmm. change uh, what's, what's going to happen. Right. Well, I think that uh, this conversation has come up before in so many different venues, and the, the question becomes, why bother getting a hit, an intuitive hit or a precog if you can't do anything about it. But then right. I think it may go deeper than that. It, it, it may not be for the purpose of doing something about it, but just to remind us how interconnected we are to this uh -huh. spectrum of reality that and that, uh, this continuum that there's really no line of demarcation anywhere. It's very, very interesting. <laughs> Say again, because I have a feeling, Robin Trish, that there are a lot of planetary empaths out there, a lot more than they know. What would some of the, the telltale signs be physically? Well, some of them Again. were quite severe, like bleeding from the ears, migraine headaches, uh, nosebleeds, just a crippling exhaustion, uh, strange sensations. It also depends on what kind of thing they're tuning in on. Mm -hmm. uh, sensations that run up and down their legs, a sense of vertigo. Heart palpitations. Yeah, heart palpitations. Uh, just... Uh... Like one woman who has been able to tell when she's having symptoms that relate to a pending volcanic eruption because she feels this intense heat, which makes sense. How long does but it last? Until the volcano erupts. Really? Yeah. I mean, for that's what I mean. For some of these people, this is not a... This is a really unpleasant thing. Oh, no. Of course. Of course. And they, they have it in different, you know, to varying degrees. But yeah. the ones who feel it the most yeah, suffer. Here's a kind of list of some of the things. Abdominal pains and discomfort, bleeding from the ears, clicking or uh, ringing in the ears, extreme vertigo, uh, heart palpitations, insomnia, migraines that last for days. Nausea. Nausea, <clears throat> nosebleeds poltergeist uh, phenomena, uh, hmm. profound sadness, and strange, vivid, and powerful dreams about disasters, and hmm. tingling or vibrating that uh, runs up and down the legs and arms. Now, my only thing is, I hope they're not getting these sensations at one time. <laughs> and I mean, they that would be very from person to person. No. Yeah. Well, we're hearing, you know, it's interesting that we are hearing more and more people talk about what is referred to as tinnitus or ringing in the ear. Uh -huh. And yeah. there's the, the conventional wisdom, <laughs> so-called, so of, of what that causes. And um, 
you know, to borrow from Whitley uh, Stryber's comment, maybe we need to be throwing that in the trash and really looking at exactly. what's going what's going on here. That we are t- literally tuning in to some other um, some other or some impending event uh, or something that's going on at the same time. It, it, it's just a fascinating fascinating thing. Um, there was another question I wanted to ask you about that planetary impacts. I think that's a big deal. Well, yeah, I do too, especially yeah. now. Yeah. What was the last time you got a, a sort of a surge or enough to raise an eyebrow of people that were complaining of before, these symptoms? I think it was before the Paris. Oh, Paris. Yeah, it was just one person though, and she was just insistent. Uh, I think her story is in the book. Just insistent of something coming up uh, very soon, and it was going to be uh, terrible and a disaster. And uh, but we hadn't heard from anybody else. No, and that one we recall. didn't hear anybody else. But she just kept emailing us and uh, mm-hmm. and being very insistent. And then all of a sudden we heard it. You know, and she and after that, her symptoms just vanished. Yes, yeah, so that was November eleventh. Around 2015. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Again, I think the theme is consistent, everyone, that we are inextricably linked to everything. And to everyone. And to everyone, <laughs> everything and everyone, all of consciousness, really, uh, and the, the, the adamant, inanimate, etc. It's It's just, it's a, we'll never be able to delineate, I don't think, exactly how it works and put it in nice, neat little compartments, but maybe it's not meant to work that way. And, I don't think you can compartmentalize this stuff you that You can't. Way. Well, I'm going to borrow another Bohm quote that I've used on several <laughs> occasions. He said, we are like whirlpools whirlpools in a stream we have identity we just do not have distinct borders oh that's interesting that's a good one i just when i heard that i thought i really that makes a lot of sense to me yes and what it really does yeah listen we only have a, I, I, this is flying by i actually as i was going through your book i'm like should this be a two-hour interview because you just have <laughs> so much stuff here but um we, do, we don't unfortunately we only have about uh, seven to ten minutes left I want to talk a little bit. Let's go back and talk about the musicians. The, these musicians that oddly seem to presage their own deaths. It's a little dark, but I think it's worth probing a little bit. They they presage their own deaths through music and lyrics that they'd written and recorded. And you actually cite examples from John Lennon to Jimi Hendrix and even Leonard Skinner. I wasn't familiar with that whole Leonard Skinner story, and I'm I, I love their music. Actually, uh, grew yeah, up with it. That's one of the strangest. Uh, this Leonard Skinner thing. Yeah. Apparently, um, in 1974, okay, they released it, their second album, Second Helping, and it featured the band's biggest hit single, Sweet Home Alabama. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, that's one of the songs that makes you want to move. Okay, three years after Second Helping, the band released Street Survivors. The cover showed the band engulfed in flames, okay, and that itself turned out to be a prescient image. Three days later, on October 20th, the band took a Convore CB300 from Greenville, South Carolina, bound for Baton Rouge, and it crashed outside of Gillespie, Mississippi. Um, the passengers have been told that one of the plane's engines had developed problems and were warned to brace for impact. Ronnie Van Zant, the lead vocalist and lyricist, one of the founding members of the band, was killed on impact when the uh, plane crashed into a tree. Five other people also died, two band members, an assistant road manager, the pilot, and co-pilots. But but in this story, the high strangeness didn't stop there, okay? One of the songs on this album is That Smell. And mm-hmm. if you listen to it on YouTube, you're going to get chills. 
because the lyrics address, um, even even though the lyrics address drug usage, there's an undercurrent in the refrain, the smell of death surrounds you. Hmm. So to me, that really, I mean, these guys knew. Yeah, some part of them did for sure. Wow. Yeah, in the video, uh, Ronnie Van Zant is spinning his hand around in right. the air as he sings, the smell of death is around you. Yes, around you. Wow, that's heavy. Well, you know, when I read that in your book, and, and by the way, audience, I so encourage you to pick up a copy of this book because it, it is anecdote rich. And we love stories and they, they just hit us in, in, in profound ways. But as I was reading that particular uh, part on the Leonard Skinner situation, you know who else came to mind? If you recall the rapper that died many years ago, Biggie Smalls. Right. Who was tragically killed. And I, I looked this up yesterday. This was not his his <clears throat> last album, but not to, maybe a few years before his death. He released an album called Ready to Die. Oh, jeez. Well, that's like Aunt poet Anne Sexton. Uh, her last publication was The Death Notebooks. And uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, wrote a song even before uh, one of his first songs about the Ballad of Jimmy uh, that predicted his, that it predicted his own death. And, uh, it never appeared on any album, but the he recorded it with Curtis Knight. Yeah, the song is uh, dedicated to the memory of Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! And it, so such a you know famous person who is so influential. He was only around uh, making music for four, four yeah, years. Yeah, he's part of the 700 Club. Yeah. yeah. Or not the 700. The 20, 27 Club. club. <laughs> the 700. <laughs> the 20, we know what you mean, Trish. <laughs> Maybe that was a precognition. <laughs> Maybe that was. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, these are sad. We don't, we don't want to end on a sad note. But again, equally profound, because I think for those of us that love to muse and contemplate not no guarantee we're going to come up with any definitive answer certainly not for me but it's worth saying what is this all about this is the 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 one phrase that the seth material brought out on me in me what is this all about what is life all about how are we connected to it uh there 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 are no coincidences at all okay there are a couple more things i want to get to i'm looking at the clock but i'm gonna i have to ask this so all of these things we would kind of count in the quasi weird to weird to high strangeness but um and you even caution the reader in the book at the beginning you say it's gonna get if you think this is weird it's gonna get a little weirder weirder what would you say i would put you on the spot if i may if you could think of one like really really weird scenario oh, you have so many i know but if you could pick one okay i'm gonna give book. you the probably the most fascinating synchronicity i ever experienced Ooh, love it go ahead okay all right in 1987 rob and i were in venezuela now i was born and raised there and this was the first time i had gone back since my family had left mm. we're standing in the micatira which is the airport in caracas airport and the place is really just a, a hub of soldiers with guns because Caracas at that time was a big hub for drugs coming in from Colombia. So we're in the security line and there's a guy in front of us dressed in a three-piece suit and carrying a briefcase and the guards men come up to him and say, oh, open up that briefcase. We want to see what's in there. And so Rob and I were like, oh, 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 is this guy a drug dealer? He looks like a drug dealer. So he opens up the briefcase. The only thing in there is a novel I wrote called Fevered which fit 
this atmosphere in the place. But I wrote it under a pseudonym, Alison Drake. So it wasn't like I could even go up and tap this guy on the shoulder and say, hey, hey, you got my book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what are the odds of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that was my best one. Wow. Yeah, I had, yeah. I had one uh, that we had a cat named Fox. And uh, <laughs> Fox just disappeared one day. And... Uh, after a couple of days, Trish started worrying. The cat wandered a little bit, but Trish really became concerned. Uh, <clears throat> after it was gone two, three days, she said, I know something's wrong. Something's happened to happened to Fox. And I, I said, uh, I think this was like a Tuesday or Wednesday when she said that. I said, the cat, I just had this strong impression. The cat is going to be back by midnight on Saturday. <laughs> and so, oh, sure, Rob. <laughs> We, we get a knock on our back door at midnight on Saturday, about one minute to. Oh it's our next door neighbor, and she's holding Fox. <laughs> she she said he was right out here in the courtyard, uh, and uh, there he was, and his his paws were all scratched up. He had been some, and he smelled like uh, perfume. perfume. Oh, my and God. So, somebody, <laughs> somebody had taken her. And she somehow had clawed out and made her way out. And got away and came home. <laughs> <Isn't> <laughs> but it was just right to the minute. <laughs> to the minute. Listen, everyone, if these stories aren't enough to turn you on your ear, and then when you turn right side up, think, I'm going <laughs> to figure this out because this is pretty cool. Think of all the things, whether we understand it or not, that we, again, are so linked to that we can, that we can do. We can sense the future. We can tap our intuition and we can read signs from the universe to predict what's to come. And if you don't believe me, read this book, Sensing the Future. <laughs> Listen, Rob and Trish McGregor, it is always a pleasure. And it's been way too long. We can't go another three years. I can't believe That's it's true. been three years. Because I know you're you so much fun to talk to. Alexis. Likewise, we could go on forever. We're going to continue after we sign off, hopefully for a few minutes. But I want to thank you once again. And audience, be sure to visit. We will make sure to have all the links and we're going to have some great relevant links from because there's so many stories just in this this one hour. And of course, a link to the book. Tell us the when and where we can get it. The book. It's going to be available tomorrow, January 10th, major bookstores, Amazon, wherever, wherever books are sold. Wherever (laughs) books are sold. An ebook as well as hard. Back. Yeah, the ebook. And, yeah, the ebook. Everything and in, and in print will okay. be available. Well, I'm going to recommend the 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 one you can hold in your hands. I was saying to Rob <laughs> and Trish, this is it's it's actually a really neat sort of oversized book, and it's really worthy of a coffee table display. And I'm going to give the suggestion that you buy the hard copy of this book and you put it on your coffee table and you invite <laughs> your family over for the people that never ever ever talk about these things. And I guarantee you, they're going to notice that cover because it's so beautiful and big. <laughs> So go get that book, everyone. <laughs> Rob and Trish, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you. on Higher Thank Journeys you. Radio. And again, Happy New Year. Same to you. Happy New Year. <laughs> Could it be that not only are we glimpsing the future through precognition, but writing our own lives as we go along? The stories that both Trish and Rob told of the numerous accounts of those who, whether writing lyrics or a fictional narrative, something about the act of creating may be providing a template for a real-life playout. Though some of the instances they cited had dire consequences, the overarching theme is that not only do we sense the future, we create our real-life storyline and then play the starring role. Sensing the future, how to tap your intuition and read signs from the universe to predict what's to come, 
is fresh off the presses, and I urge you to get yourself a copy and learn more about the wondrous and mysterious world of precognition and intuition. Thank you so much for tuning in to this, our first episode of Higher Journeys for the New Year. Until next time, I'm your host, Alexis Brooks.